0: If your past week was anything like ours, Saturday could not have come any sooner. Hopefully, though, all your work is taken care of, your shopping is done, mostly, and you're ready to enjoy a nice long weekend. Good morning. I'm George Bolarki, and this is Cityscape from WFUV and WFUV.org. On this Christmas edition of Cityscape, we'll do our best to help set the mood for the holiday season. First, some music courtesy of the 80-year-old Downtown Glee Club. We'll also get a tour of a Bronx family's Christmas ornaments and all the memories they evoke. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a Christmas-themed tale from a local storyteller. Her name is Regina Ress. And in our last segment, we'll discuss the darker side of the holidays. For some, this time of year can be very difficult. Later this half hour, we'll learn about seasonal affective disorder. That's all coming up on this week's Cityscape. Thanks for joining us. The heyday for Glee Clubs may have been decades ago, but each year around Christmas, dozens of choruses still make the rounds, spreading carols and holiday cheer to grateful audiences. One of New York City's oldest groups is the Downtown Glee Club. I recently caught a performance and spoke with the club's president.
1: I am Jerry Osterberg, president of the Downtown Glee Club. The bell, sweet silver bells, seem to say,
0: away, this Glee Club has a long history. It's been around since, what, the 1920s?
1: 1927. We're going to be celebrating our 80th anniversary next spring. I'm a new kid on the block. I only go back 25 years, George.
2: What is the history of this group?
1: The history of the group is that um, a long time ago, in 1927, there were a couple of men who worked around Wall Street. One of them worked at Trinity Church. He was the choir master and organist at Trinity Church. His name is uh, Channing Lefebvre. He's long gone. And his friend and he had been in the Navy together. And they decided that what New York City needed was another glee club. And I say another glee club, I mean that literally and figuratively because there were so many glee clubs around back then. Every company had a glee club. There was a stock exchange glee club, the Morgan Bank glee club, you name it. And there was always room for one more. And in those days, people worked until 5 o'clock and they went home. Or they stayed around for some kind of activity, like singing.
3: Jingle bell, jingle, bell, jingle all the way. Oh, what fun
2: it is to ride in one-horse open hey, Most of the original bell, recruits
1: were from the Wall Street area. The they did oh, rehearse at Trinity jingle Church, or one of the buildings connected with Trinity Church, for obvious reasons. And uh, most of the people were able to walk from their place of business to the rehearsal. It started out as a Wednesday night. Eventually moved to a Tuesday night their first concert, their first performance in May of 1927, they had about 150 singers on stage. When they had the first rehearsal, the first auditions, if you would, 100 people showed up for the first auditions. That's amazing. We now have auditions every every season, of course. We usually have auditions the first two or three weeks when we start a rehearsal season. And if we get a half a dozen people to show up, we consider ourselves very fortunate and happy. Why do you think the levels have dropped off through the years? First of all, a lot of people don't know what a glee club is anymore. Glee, they think glee isn't happy, happy. And glee is a, is a name, an old, old name for a male chorus. And over the years now, glee clubs can be mixed as well. There's still a few male glee clubs in the colleges I think Notre Dame and one or two others still have it. But most glee clubs these days, in spite of the name, are mixed groups. And part of that, I think, is because for some reason what's happened over the years, besides the fact that there's so much competition for one's free time and people have less free time, and not to mention the fact that there's other choruses, there's a New York Grand Opera, there's you name it, and church choirs as well. Why is it that York Lee Club has not opened itself up to women? Well, there's a practical reason, which is probably not a good answer. Practical reason is that our music library, uh, which is pretty deep, it, it has about, at this point, we probably have about a thousand pieces of music, a thousand different numbers. We probably have a minimum of 40 copies of each piece, and maybe as many as 100 copies. And uh, they're all arranged for tenor, tenor, bass, bass, four-part male harmony. So if we snapped our fingers together right now and said, let's do a mixed group, well, number one is there's plenty of mixed groups around. The world doesn't need another mixed group in New York or elsewhere. And it would be a fortune just recreating, you know, restructuring a library to do SATB, as choral singers know, soprano, alto, tenor, bass.
0: Has the Downtown Glee Club taken heat because women are not invited?
1: Not recently. We did go through a period uh, back in the 60s, before I joined, but back in the 60s and 70s, a little bit into the 80s, where it was, we were considered you know, male chauvinist pigs, you know, why, not, why not women? And in fact, there were a couple of uh, activities. Uh, I remember there were a couple of uh, college commencement exercises that the Downtown Glee Club was uh, disinvited from. Because we weren't mixed.
0: Why do you think it is that your glee club has stood the test of time when so many others haven't?
1: I'll leave out the ego part of the answer, George. Enough people, enough people in the club that have kept the flag raised in the air that we're just dedicated enough to say we're not going to let this thing go. The good news is that we've had new members. The bad news is that they've just about replaced the attrition. I think the other reason we've survived is because we are diverse. We're pretty diverse in age we probably range from uh, early 30s up until close to 80. And we are some retired, some bankers like myself, 40 years at Morgan Bank almost, teachers, uh, musicians, dancers, you name it. The professions are as represented as they could be among just 20, 25 people. So I think somehow that diversity, sounds a bit of a cliche, I think has made us stronger And we've survived the hard times. Do you look for anything particular in a new member when it comes to voice? What we look for, first of all, is someone who can carry a tune. Someone who can sing a song, can stay on key, doesn't have to read music. As long as they're a good sight reader and they can blend. What we don't want is 24 soloists, because 24 soloists sound like 24 soloists you need someone who can put on their tuesday night hat to sing with us and to put aside their ego and and we've got guys who sing lead on a rock band and you hear that guy you hear bill sing in a rock band at some club it used to be smoky club no longer smoky thank god and you say wow that's the same guy that's singing tuesday night and blending his voice and we can't hear him except part of the blend that's pretty impressive, you know, can do that.
2: My name is Stephen Vratos. I'm a bass too, as well as the music committee chairman for the Downtown Glee Club.
0: And how long have you been a member of the Glee Club?
2: 95, I believe, so just over 10 years.
0: Were you always a singer?
2: Uh, actually, uh, I made my debut as Five Golden Rings in kindergarten. I've always loved singing, although I've never been really part of a group until high school, where there was a Glee Club.
0: What do you get out of it?
2: I just love it. I love singing. I think uh, there are a lot of guys out there who love to sing, but they feel that they're not good singers, or you know, they it's you know, it's not manly or whatever, but. You know the great thing with a glee club is you don't have to be Tony Bennett. You you are part of a whole. So as long as you can carry a tune, you're contributing. What are you in the daytime? I'm I'm a freelancer. I work for several publishing companies. I do editorial and production work. Are
0: you proud of your participation in the glee club? Do you tell coworkers, folks that you work with?
2: Oh yeah. This, uh, I had a few people at the concert last week that uh, had come from a couple of places that I work at. Um, and, yeah, I always tell them, I always uh, needle them to come along. And, uh, you know, some people just are like, oh, Glee Club, you know, they, they have weird connotations, and I'm not sure where that comes from, but uh, they maybe they think it's dodgy and boring, but a lot of the stuff we do in this club is more contemporary, and it's, uh, we, m- more than anything else, we want to entertain the crowd we don't want them coming out and saying it sounded nice but god it was boring said so we don't want that we want it sounded good and it was a lot of fun hey, jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. that was the downtown
0: glee club oh, <laughs> <laughs> check them out online <laughs> at downtowngleeclub.org. <laughs> One of the joys of this time of year is the chance to see family and tell old stories. For many families, the ornaments on a Christmas tree hold an important place. As the tree gets decorated, each ornament evokes a special memory. We recently visited the home of Kathy Coletti, who also happens to work here at WFUV. Her family has lived in the Pelham Bay section of the Bronx for 22 years.
3: Hi, my name is Kathy Colletti and I work for WFUV. I'm the director of membership operations. I am standing in my living room looking at the Christmas tree. It was about two weeks ago and my husband usually takes stuff from the attic and then he puts up the tree and then we put on the ornaments. We do have special places where certain ornaments go. I have four children so I have their original, their first um, Christmas ornaments, which is the shoes. Um, there's a baby in a cradle. Here's another one. This is my younger daughter's, Olivia. It's a precious moment. And I have the other one for Jennifer, another little ornament with a teddy bear on it. And then um, I have my husband's, which is the first item of my husband's wedding anniversary. Since he's very handy, I have a special tool ornament for him. It's um, a toolbox with tools in it and has his name on it, and we put that up every year. The oldest one has to be the marriage one, is the oldest one. And I have two of them. One I purchased, and one was given to me for my first Christmas. My son was born on December 19th. When they came to see him, when I brought him home from the hospital, my sister-in-law bought me uh, baby shoes to put on the tree. When The Wizard of Oz, when they were younger, like three years old, four years old, and The Wizard of Oz came out and they just wanted to watch it, they became... Christmas ornaments. I have the Wizard of Oz on the tree. Here's Dorothy the Scarecrow. The Tin Man's here and the Carolee Lion. Some of them are personal. Like I had um, a very close neighbor who gave me the um, cross, which I'm not even Irish, but it goes on the tree every year. She's uh, passed away since, but it goes up every year. I have gold ornaments that my mother-in-law purchased every year when she was working and they go on the tree usually i put up all the baby first baby ones in the first christmas and they usually put up their favorite ones of whether if it's a disney ornament or a sesame street ornament or just anything they particularly like
0: That's WFUV's Director of Membership Operations, Kathy Coletti, in her Pelham Bay home. You're listening to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This week, we're bringing you stories of Christmas. We're joined now by storyteller Regina Ress. The holidays are a time to reconnect with family, but also an opportunity to forge new ties. Here, Regina brings us the story of how she got to know... Brenda.
4: Brenda was crouched on the sidewalk at the corner of MacDougall and Houston one Sunday morning in October. That was strange, because she usually sits on one of the benches in front of my building. She held a small, blue, wise potato chip bag, and in it she had hidden a bottle of Heineken beer. Camouflage, she said, smiling ironically. I squatted down beside her. The sidewalk was clean, from a good, long rain we'd had the night before. The air was clean, the sidewalk was clean, and there was Brenda drinking a Heineken from a potato chip bag at 10.30 on a Sunday morning, greeting the old Italian ladies on their way to St. Anthony's for Mass. Hi, sugar, going to church? Genuine interest, not asking for a handout. It was pure Brenda. That was how she first got me, two, maybe even three years ago, a cheerful, friendly voice greeting me as though she'd known me forever so long. She told me how good I looked that day, and I remember that I was feeling good and that my radiance and hers were matched, except that I soon figured out she was a homeless African-American woman living on the streets of New York. She became my lady. I never really engaged her in conversation, just greetings and smiles. She never asked for anything. I never offered. And then I started once in a while to buy her cartons of juice, usually apple or orange. One day I asked her what kind of juice she liked. Cranberry, she said with a great big smile. And so after that, when I did offer it to her, it was cranberry. Brenda is quite beautiful. High cheekbones, rich, reddish-brown skin, curly hair, usually under some bright cap. She changes caps often. But mostly what you notice about her is her loving presence. She is very present, except when she's drunk, and then she's apologetic. Once, when I was talking to her, she told me that her aunt had read Langston Hughes' poetry to her when she was young. I told her that my mother had known him in college— and she had read to me from an autographed copy of some of his poems. Brenda and I exchanged smiles. At some point, she asked me what I do. I said that I'm a storyteller. Now, most people look pretty blank at that one, not Brenda. Oh, like Burl Ives, he was the greatest. So there we were, sitting on the sidewalk that October morning. We talked a bit about the neighborhood, What's the view from down here, I asked, really referring to from the sidewalk perspective. She offered back an enthusiastic assessment of Greenwich Village. I meet a lot of gay people, she said. They're so nice, really interesting people, and I meet lots of actors. And then she named someone I didn't know, probably from television. And the old Italian ladies and the children, it's so nice to see the little girls with their daddies. At that moment, a man and his seven- or eight-year-old daughter were crossing Houston Street hand-in-hand on their way to church. While we were talking about the neighborhood, I spoke about the three firemen from the station just across the street who had been killed the prior spring in Soho and how this neighborhood responded. I made a large circle with my arms holding my wrists. This neighborhood had held that firehouse and its mourning members with an outpouring of love and concern that touched everyone. Now, mind you, this conversation took place before 9-11. For a month or more, there was a kind of a shrine of flowers, photos, and other gifts in front of the black and purple-draped station. Brenda responded, I knew those guys. I knew those firemen. I took them flowers. My eyes filled. I asked her if she'd eaten. She pointed to a big brown bag, and she said, Black Forest ham and Zito's bread. (laughs) But I'd love something to drink. Go get me some cranberry juice, sugar. And she handed me a dollar bill. I went to the deli and bought her a juice and a piece of coffee cake that had cranberries in it. She beamed. When I left her that morning, I had the deep understanding that I had been talking to one of my neighbors. She is my lady. Where are our villages? Where are our neighborhoods? We're so overwhelmed with the sheer numbers and the hostility that so often comes at us on the streets we forget. People like Brenda are part of our neighborhoods too. A few weeks ago, my friend Lorna's father died. I was walking over to her apartment with a big chicken I had roasted and some potatoes in a pot. "'What you got cooking, girl?' "'There she was, Brenda, bright and early, "'with a tiny plastic bottle of vodka, "'which she tried to hide from me. "'Brenda's very apologetic about her drinking. "'I opened the pot lid "'and told her it was for my friend, "'whose dad had died. "'Well, first she insisted on giving me "'a plastic bag to carry it in. "'She emptied hers of its six bars of zest soap "'in their dirty wrappers, "'and then she decided "'that might make the chicken smell of soap, "'and walked to the nearby store.' commandeered a man to go in and get a clean bag for her then she wanted to give him or me money to go in and buy a sympathy card i finally convinced her that i would take her love and a hug to lorna and that would be better the next day when i saw her she was a bit incoherent and insisted on giving me a dollar's worth of food stamps Well, on October 27th that year, I was returning from telling Halloween stories for kids at a rec center way uptown. Poor kids, African-American, Spanish mostly. I was thinking about storytelling as social action. Well, there was Brenda leaning against the wall of the subway station. She was a mess. There was a flute player opposite her, the sweetness of the music echoing in the tunnel. Hey, baby, come here, loud and clear with that edge I now know means drunk. She was wearing white tennis shoes with no laces, a dirty red sweatshirt, gray coat, and pants. And with tears in her eyes, she said, My mother-in-law died. I tried to determine if this was good news or bad. Brenda was pretty incoherent. I asked if she'd eaten. No. I gave her some money to get food, saying, No liquor, Brenda. And then I realized she couldn't even make it to the food place. So I took the money back, and I said I'd bring her dinner. She requested beef barbecue, mashed potatoes, and gravy. I told her to stay put, and I dashed out of the subway to the barbecue place right on the street. The mashed potatoes and gravy was extra, and I had to pay another entrance fee to get back into the subway. When I got to the corridor, Brenda was gone, but her bag was still there. I went down to the platform, found her sitting on a bench smoking a cigarette. She asked if I would bring her bag down. I agreed, and I walked back up. It was very heavy. God knows what was in it. She was eating very slowly when I returned. She handed me a dollar and said she'd pay back the rest later. I accepted the dollar for the subway entrance. I figured I'd offered the dinner. Anyway, I left her there with her bag and her meal, hoping she'd eat it all, hoping she'd be okay. I left with a good luck and went home to dinner with my son. A few days later, October 31st, I saw her again, sitting right in front of my building, waiting for the Greenwich Village Halloween Parade to begin. It starts a couple blocks south of my place and passes right by us. Half a million people now come to this parade, which began as a local good time, just about the same time I moved into the neighborhood. Brenda called out to me, gave me a dollar, and said there would be more coming. She was settling in to watch the parade. November 1st. Brenda called out, Hey, sugar! She handed me a $10 bill. Last night, a tourist had given it to her. She said she wanted to pay me back for the dinner. I gave her the change she had coming. We were square. Then she told me that Silvano, who owns and operates the fancy Italian restaurant in my building, had given her a $100 bill the night before. She said she figured he was drunk and took it back to him, but he made her keep it. I wonder how many of us in this neighborhood there are looking out for Brenda. So one evening... A week later, I passed by Brenda. She beckoned with her finger. She handed me a dollar bill and told me to go buy myself some juice, some cranberry juice. And I said, Brenda, I don't need your money. And she smiled. You bought me juice. You buy me juice. One hand washes the other, sugar. I took the dollar. I bought myself the juice. You know, that juice was so sweet. Well, after a few years, Brenda stopped coming to the neighborhood. A few of us still talk about her, and we hope the best for her. As for me, I think of her a lot at this time of year. I think about her, a homeless lady, filled with love and light, my neighbor, Brenda.
0: That storyteller Regina Russ. Mm-hmm. The holidays can be very joyous, but for many people, they can also be a time of loneliness, sadness, anxiety, and depression. The symptoms could easily be shrugged off as the holiday blues, but experts say it might not be that simple. Dr. Michael Turman is director of the Center for Light Treatment and Biological Rhythms at Columbia University Medical Center. I spoke to him by phone earlier this week. Dr. Michael Turman, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. Good to be with you. Doctor, what is it about this time of year that can bring people down?
5: Well, you can have these emotional connections to family difficulties in earlier years, but for the population as a whole, what brings you down is actually the delayed sunrise in the middle of the winter. It's more of a seasonal problem, an environmental problem, than the holidays per se.
0: And this is an actual disorder, correct?
5: Called seasonal Affective Disorder and the people who experience this get really down. They can get into a true clinical depression every year and the worst time of year is the two months that follow the winter solstice. That's this week.
0: What's happening with our bodies that allows this to happen?
5: We're having problems synchronizing the internal clock in our brain with the external world. In winter, when the sunrise gets later, the internal clock is looking for that signal and it's drifting later till it finds it. And as that happens, you get a mismatch between the internal clock and the external day, when you have to sleep, when you have to wake up, when you have to work, and that mismatch
0: is it difficult to diagnose seasonal affective disorder?
5: Well, a true diagnosis must, must be done by a clinician. However, there is a handy first-order diagnosis that you can do yourself. It's on the Internet. It's called the Personalized Inventory for Depression and SAD. And it'll give you an individualized feedback sheet to say, are you suffering true SAD? Are you just suffering mild blues? Do you need to see a psychiatrist or a psychologist? Or can are there things you can do to take care of it on your own?
0: Would taking a winter vacation in a sunny climate help?
5: It can help briefly. You can feel great down in Florida or the Caribbean for the 10 days that you spend there. But there's a downside. When you return to New York after that vacation, you can plummet down far worse than before you left.
0: What are the standard treatments then for SAD?
5: Well, the number one treatment is bright light therapy. And the purpose of bright light therapy is to present a substitute sunrise signal at a time in winter when the sun hasn't come up yet. In other words, you're trying to trick the nervous system into thinking it's springtime, and that will adjust the internal circadian rhythm back to its springtime state, and you'll very quickly feel better.
0: I know that you have recommended, doctors something called a Dawn Simulator.
5: This is a new kind of treatment that we've been exploring successfully. It uses much dimmer light. And the nifty thing about it is that the treatment is taken while you're asleep in a dark bedroom. And about two hours before you wake up, a little computer controller tells a light diffuser to very slowly and gradually increment the light level in your bedroom. It's almost as if you were sleeping in a tent on the beach and the sun were slowly rising. What we're doing then is programming a simulated sunrise in your bedroom, which is anchored to springtime rather than to wintertime. As time goes on, more and more doctors learn to ask questions about seasonality. But you'll still find most doctors, if you come in, say, in, in February, and you tell your doc, you're totally wiped out you're sleeping longer hours, and you're gobbling carbohydrates. The likelihood that your primary care doctor is going to ask you about the seasonality, about whether you feel better in May and June and July, is still very low. We're still underdiagnosing this disorder.
0: Dr. Michael Turman, thanks so much for your time. Pleasure. Dr. Michael Turman is director of the Center for Light Treatment and Biological Rhythms at Columbia University Medical Center. To learn more about seasonal affective disorder, click on CET.org. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. Regardless of how much sunlight we get this time of year, We hope your holidays are as bright as they can get. I'm George Boldarki. My thanks to producer Jody Avergan. Have a Merry Christmas.